0: The creator of the water is in perfect control of what he has created. He created water in such a way as to be displaced by a human body except for this instance. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. So the crowd has left him. He's all alone on a mountain, we're told. And the boat is out on the sea, verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, we'll stop there. So Jesus, during his prayer, he is said to see them and to see something about their situation, which is to say they're making headway painfully. So much has been said about how did Jesus see them? And much explanation has been offered that uh, perhaps this was near the time of the Passover and we all know that the Passover takes place at full moon. So it was probably a full moon and Jesus was up high on a mountain and he looks out and he can see the disciples there out on the Sea of Galilee and he can see that they're not doing very well. Or other explanations, maybe Jesus came down from the mountain and he's now on, he's on the shore and he's looking out and he's seeing them and seeing that they're not doing too well. Which both of those explanations are just absolutely ludicrous, aren't they? It's at night. It's a storm. Storms normally have rain and mist and fog. Plus, they are miles apart. Plainly, clearly, Jesus' seeing of them is a supernatural seeing. Very plainly, the spirit that indwells him, as Jesus is communing in prayer, the spirit that indwells him opens his mind, shows him this picture of the disciples on the water as it's described making headway painfully. So that's actually actually the first miracle of the story. Interestingly enough, the story has not one miracle, but five. There's five miracles in the story before us. And the first is, we just saw, the supernatural seeing of the disciples. The second miracle, we all know that one, is the actual walking on the water. The third miracle is the supernatural calming of the storm because we're going to be told that as Jesus gets in the boat, it's immediately calm. The fourth miracle... Actually, took place right uh, just before that one. But the fourth miracle, not narrated by Mark, was when Jesus tells Peter to himself get out of the boat, and he gets out of the boat, and he takes some steps on the water. The, but being in, it, supernaturally empowered by Jesus to do what he could never do. So that's the fourth miracle, or the third miracle. Then the fourth is the calming of the storm. And then the fifth miracle is only narrated by John, Because John tells us as soon as Jesus got in the boat, they were immediately at the shore. So somehow Jesus then, once he gets in the boat, they were at that point at least a mile from shore, but they're immediately at the shore. So five miracles in the story. The first is Jesus' supernatural seeing. We'll come back to that next week. We'll come back to a lot of this next week. But Jesus' supernatural seeing of His called out people in the middle of danger. So He saw that they were making headway painfully. Now, those, that, that phrase, making headway painfully, that's translating a word that most often is translated torment or tortured. It's the same word that Mark narrates from the mouth of the demons. When the demons say to Jesus, "What are you? have you come to torment us before the day, before the hour? It's a word that shows up a lot in the Revelation to speak of the torment or the torture that awaits the evil one and his demons. So the same description, they are being tortured, they're being tormented by the waves. Matthew uses the same word to describe what the waves are doing to the boat. Mark uses the same word to describe the experience of the disciples. They are tortured. They are being tormented, making headway painfully. So we can imagine what it would be like to be rowing against the wind now for a number of hours. Mark tells us it's the fourth hour or the fourth watch of the night. So Mark, as we know, is writing to a Roman audience and writing to a Roman audience is going to use the Roman method of dividing the night into four periods. The Hebrews would divide the night into three periods. The Romans divided it into four. He'll do it again in chapter 13. But he divides the he's using the Roman method of thinking of the night as in four segments. And the fourth watch of the night would correspond to our 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So we read earlier that when evening came, the crowd was dismissed. The the disciples got onto the water. So we would imagine that they got onto the water maybe just at dusk, right at the end of the day. So that would put that maybe, we'll think conservatively here, maybe 8 p.m. And if this is the very beginning, Mark says it's about the fourth watch. So if, if it's the very beginning of the fourth watch, that's seven hours. Seven hours of Jesus being in prayer and seven hours of the disciples facing this wind. Now, we know what happens in a storm and you're on a boat, even if you're not a sailor. You you know how it works when you're in a boat, especially a smaller boat, in a storm. What do you have to do? You have to keep the boat heading into the waves. Because if a boat is not heading directly into the... If the waves come at the boat from the side, then the boat's going to capsize. To survive the storm, the boat has to go straight into the waves. And that's how you fight a storm in a boat is you basically just keep the boat going into the waves. You're not worried about progress. You're not worried about how far you're getting. you got to keep the boat heading into the waves. And to do that, the boat has to be moving in relation to the water. And you're probably not, as as the case is here, you're not moving very much in relation to the land, but the boat has to be moving in relation to the water in order to be steerable and in order to to keep the, the, the bow of the boat heading into the waves the whole time. So that's what the disciples have been doing. They've been rowing against the waves to keep the boat going into the waves throughout the storm. So imagine rowing. Again, let's just be real conservative. Let's just say that that the storm has been bad now for four or five hours. Imagine rowing hour after hour after hour and pulling on those oars. Now, they, they were seamen. But still, this is a multiple hour storm. And just imagine what their arms feel like. And imagine what their back feels like and what their legs feel like. Rowing into the storm, into the waves, hour after hour after hour, Mark uses the appropriate word to say they are tormented. They feel like their, their arms are spaghetti. They feel like that they're just not going to make it anymore because they, just, but they can't stop because there's no such thing as life vests. And if that boat gets turned against the waves and it capsizes the boat, they're, they're dead. So, they've got to keep the boat moving and they've got to keep it moving into the wind. The wind here would have been most likely what's known of even today as a predominantly eastward blowing wind. Even to this day, the Sea of Galilee experiences strong storms that are almost always west to east. And so, this westerly wind, or this easterly wind, is combating the disciples. They are, travel, they are trying to travel westward. So uh, Matthew says that the wind was opposite them. Mark here says that the wind was against them. They're trying to make it westward and the wind is blowing eastward. And the waves, of course, are going the same direction as the wind and they're trying to get the boat heading into the waves all night long and they've done this until the fourth watch of the night. Now, John tells us, that they had made it about 25 to 30 stadia. And we all know what that means, right? Because we use stadia all the time. A stadia is an eighth of a mile. Just so for your information, you always learn something in church, right? A stadia is an eighth of a mile. And so they've made it about 25 to 30 stadia, which puts it about three to four miles. Now, the journey from Bethsaida Julius to Bethsaida of Galilee, which is not where they're going to make it, by the way. But that journey is a journey of about six miles over water. So they are about maybe two-thirds of the way to where they're trying to get to, at least from a distant standpoint. And they've made that two-thirds of a way against the wind in the storm at night. So they were making this headway painfully. The wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, last week, we talked about the absurd attempts to explain away the miraculous feeding through these crazy things such as Jesus hid all these baskets of food, enough food to feed eight to 15,000 people, and nobody saw Him sneak it out of the cave. And these just crazy, ridiculous explanations trying to explain away the plain truth of the Scripture's meaning what they say, which was that Jesus miraculously fed the, the, the crowds. We talked about that last week. This week when we come to this miracle, we come against the same thing. Ridiculous explanations that I know that you have encountered these somewhere along the line. Some sort of explanation as to how it was that Jesus appeared to walk on the water, but didn't really walk on the water. The most common one is that it was a stormy night, fog, fog, the disciples were disoriented. They'd gotten lost on the water. And Jesus wasn't actually on the water. He was on the shore. And because it was foggy and misty and they couldn't see real well, it was like this optical illusion. They were really a lot closer to the shore than they thought. And there was Jesus on the shore and they thought he was on the water. That's probably the most common one. Pretty crazy, huh? The uh, A little bit less common of, a, of an explanation is that Jesus knew about a sandbar. There was a sandbar that somehow Jesus was able to walk on this sandbar and get in the boat, yet the boat didn't get stuck on the sandbar. I'm not sure how that worked out, but Jesus somehow knew about this sandbar, knew it was there, knew it went out to the boat and walked on the sandbar and got into the boat, which quite frankly is far more of a fantastical explanation than the fact that He walked on the water. This guy, Jesus, earlier in the day he managed to feed eight to 15,000 people with nobody seeing where he got the food. Now tonight, he just happens to know where a sandbar is and the boat just happens to not get stuck on the sandbar and he walks on the sandbar to get into the boat. Isn't that... I mean, the explanations require more faith than the actual miracle itself. So just to be clear, just to be very plain with us, the phrase that Mark uses twice, he came to them on the sea. Sometimes we, we talk about how words can mean different things and, and particularly Greek prepositions. Greek prepositions can be notorious to mean different things. And, and so could this mean he walked by the sea? To be very clear and to be very plain, there is no way of interpreting those words other than the way that they're interpreted. You would have to violate the rules of the language and make words mean what they don't mean in order to say Jesus walked by the sea. It's not possible. The language, the Greek language, does not allow for that interpretation or or that translation is simply not possible. It's the same identical grammatical phrase that, that Mark just used in verse 47 to say, to say that Jesus was on the land. So in the same way he's on the land is where he's, is in the same way he's now on the sea. So it is not possible for Mark's words to mean anything other than he was treading on water. So he comes to them walking on the sea, the second miracle of the story. Now, This miracle, the nature of this miracle is, is plain and obvious to all of us, which is to say water doesn't support human beings. You might can float in water and you might can keep your head above water when you float, but your entire body is not going to tread on the water. That's just not how water works. And so plainly, the creator of the water, is in perfect control of what he has created. He created water in such a way as to be displaced by a human body except for this, for this instance. He created water such as to allow a human body to go down in the water except for this time. Because in this instance, Jesus wants to walk on top of the water. He wants to tread on top of the water. And so miraculously, He changes the nature, the very makeup of the water's molecules to support His weight and to do it easily while He walks on the water. He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. So we stop right there. Because that's a very unusual phrase. We talked earlier about the unusualness, the oddness of Jesus making the disciples leave. Now we come to something that's even odder. He meant to pass them by. What in the world does that mean? Does Jesus see his disciples struggling out on the water and think, oh, I need to go to them? And so he walks on the water and his intention was to sort of, sort of, I don't know, sneak by them, maybe shout out some encouragement as he goes by. Hey, guys, keep on rowing. You can make it. You can do it. Keep, keep rushing. You're almost there. One commentator actually says that Jesus didn't intend for the disciples to see him. He wanted to surprise them when they got to the other side of the sea. But the disciples accidentally saw him. So he was able to walk on water, but he wasn't able to conceal himself from the disciples somehow. But what is this, what's going on here? Why did, why are we told Jesus meant to pass them by? And it's translated well, Jesus purposed or he willed, he meant to pass them by or to pass by them. The most common explanation that's given is this that Jesus wanted to evoke from the disciples a response of faith. Jesus wanted the disciples to see Him, recognize Him, and ask Him to come into the boat with them. And so Jesus is trying to draw out of them this request of faith, this request of trust. You may have heard that, because that's the most. I think that's the most common way to understand that passage but it's also the most nonsensical way to understand the passage because it makes no sense whatsoever. First of all, as Jesus meant to pass them by, if it was His intention to pass them by and the disciples somehow overrode Jesus' intentions, that's problematic in and of itself. But think about it just from a basic standpoint. Imagine that you are in that boat And imagine you've been rowing against the sea, the waves now for hour upon hour upon hour. And then you see this person coming to you on the water. And then you get past the whole point that you are frightened and you don't know what this is or who this is. You now recognize it's Jesus. What do you think happened then? The disciples look at one another and say, hey, I got an idea. Let's ask Jesus to come on the boat. You want to? Why don't we just ask Him... Now, yeah, let's invite him onto the boat. Ludicrous. Once they recognize it's Jesus, who in their right mind will not welcome him into the boat? So for me, that offers no explanation whatsoever. I'm stunned. I'm stunned at how many handlers of this passage miss it altogether. Because once I show it to you, it'll be very plain. What we are faced with here. Is something called a theophany. Now, theophany is a fancy word that you, again, one of those words you don't need to remember the word, but it's one of those words that, though it's not found in the Bible, it's a word that helps us understand what the Bible says to us. Because that's how we like to think. Remember that whole discussion when we talked about the parables, as, as Jesus teaches the parables, how the Western mind from the Greek tradition, the Western mind, what we like to do is we like to take concepts and we like to take the the idea of the concept and break it down, give it a word. That way we can handle it and toss it around in our mind and think about it and talk about it. And so these biblical words are the same thing. They give us a word to help us think about something that we're presented with in Scripture. So the Scripture presents us with these things called theophanies. The theophany is just a, a, like the Greeks often do. They would take two words and put them together. They just took the word theos, which is God, and uh, phronos, which just means to reveal or to manifest or to display or to show. And so it's a God showing or a God revealing is all it is. It's a revealing of God. Now, in a real way, all of Scripture is a theophany, because all of Scripture is revealing God to us, but that's not what the word theophany is referencing. What the word theophany is talking about are instances in which God in particular reveals Himself in a particular way, in a particular moment, to particular people, for a particular reason. So that's what theophanies are. So let's think about some of the theophanies that we can think of from the Old Testament. The Old Testament has a number of theophanies. Remember, for example, when Abraham sat down and ate a meal with God and two angels? God was revealing or showing himself to Abraham in a certain way. Or maybe the best known one is Moses in the bush. The bush that burns but's not consumed. That is a revealing. It's a God revealing. God is revealing himself to Moses in that instance, in a a certain way, in a certain manner. Or some other theophanies, the cloud that the nation followed or the the angel of the Lord or the second person of the Trinity showing himself to the parents of uh, Samson or to Gideon or many other instances. There's many of these instances in the Old Testament, these theophanies. Now, when we come to the New Testament, there's also theophanies as well, but the New Testament is a little bit different because Jesus is here. Jesus, as we know, he's the revealing of the Father. So the theophanies sort of take on a different aspect. But in John's gospel, there are three theophanies, and this is the first. The next two will be, the second one will be the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9. On the Mount of Transfiguration, that's clearly a revealing of God because the disciples for a few moments see, they behold Jesus in His glory. And then the final theophany takes place in chapter 15. At the moment of Jesus' death, earthquake, darkness, and the centurion then declares, surely this man was the Son of God. So those are the second and the third theophanies. This is the first theophany. So a theophany is God revealing himself in a special way, in a special manner for a particular reason in a particular time. How is Jesus showing himself to be God here? Well, first of all, he showed himself, he revealed himself as God when he saw the disciples on the water. Then Jesus is revealing himself as God as he walks On the water. Now, if we all were sharp students of the Old Testament, we would recognize right away that that is a theme that the Old Testament carries throughout the Old Testament. Is the theme of God putting water under His feet, treading on water, trampling on water, trotting on water. A few instances in your notes go like this. Habakkuk chapter 3, and verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses. Psalm 77, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Isaiah 43, you are the one who makes a way in the sea, a path by the mighty waters. Job 9, verse 8, and others. Okay? That's, a, that's a prominent theme in the Old Testament. It's God's putting somehow, in one way or another, water under His feet, trampling on it, trotting on it. And then you could even expand it further to talk about God's control of the water, God's manipulation of the water, the parting of the Red Sea, for example. So a prominent Old Testament theme is God putting the water under His feet, walking on the water. Here comes Jesus walking on the water. Have you ever thought that if Jesus' mission was to rescue His disciples, He could have gotten there a whole lot better than that? I mean, what the whole walking on water thing... Did he have to climb up the waves and go down the other side? I mean, surely it was tedious because they're three or four miles out. If Jesus just wanted to get to them to rescue them, there was a whole lot better ways to do that. Jesus is intentionally walking on the water because the 12 Jewish, Jewish people in the boat, the 12 Jewish men in the boat are going to immediately recognize, wait a minute, our scriptures talked over and over about God treading on water.